So today we are in Jeremiah 7, uh, that's not right at all, Jeremiah 23, if you want to turn in your text to Jeremiah 23. And so here we're going to be on the upswing of Jeremiah the past uh, three months, four months. We've been looking at the sermons and the judgments of Jeremiah, kind of the rougher stuff. Not to say that there's not more hard stuff to come, but there's also this, this, this greatness of the fact that while the exile happened in Jeremiah, the exile wasn't the end of the people of Israel. It wasn't the end of God's people. And um, especially the next couple weeks. Next week, Matt is going to be sharing a little bit about sabbatical. And then Jeff and Jay and Nikki are going to be preaching through the book. Uh, it's called the Book of Consolation, which is the four chapters in Jeremiah that contain the promise of the Messiah to come. That talk about this new covenant that God is going to be established establishing not only with Judah and Israel, but with all people through Judah and Israel. So today, we're going to kind of hone in on this idea of the righteous branch as we read through. A reminder that as we read through the text, we want to be able to receive the text as it is. So while the things that I say up here are, I feel are important, and I want to give some insight into the text, you also just want to listen to God's word and what is God's word saying in that context and to us today. And to us today. So we're going to start um, Jeremiah chapter 23. I'm going to take a couple verses at a time. Let's do verses 1 through 3 ish, 2 ish. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. So this section comes off of a couple chapters where Jeremiah and God are uh, railing against the government institutions. And when I say government, that doesn't mean that they're not um, God-ordained, but against the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, the priests. Pashur was a priest. And so the past couple chapters, there's been these judgments against these kings and these priests. And for Judah, all of the people of Judah were quote-unquote guilty, which gives us the sense of our corporate, our corporate nature of faith, right? That, yeah, there were surely people in uh, the city that were righteous. Jeremiah, even say, was a righteous man. And yet, as a whole, this destruction and everything was coming, this exile was coming because of the corporate nature of their sin. And so many people, the majority of the people, just turned a blind eye to what was going on um, in the city, whether it was to the foreigner, whether it was to uh, the orphan, the widow, but more specifically, in their worship or not worship of Yahweh, of God. So this is coming off of that, and this is saying, woe to the shepherds, and the shepherds here are specifically those people. They're the leadership. So everybody is guilty, but Jeremiah and God are singling out the leaders in this place. And all of us, to one degree or another, lead in some capacity. Maybe it's not officially, but we lead in our families, we lead in our friendships, we lead here, there, and everywhere, as Dr. Seuss said. But the point being is that there is this kind of um, direct judgment against the shepherds, against the priests, against the kings, because they were, they knew what was right and what was wrong. 
there might have been some quote-unquote lesser people that weren't as well-educated that may have been able to, 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 to be excused, even though Jeremiah elsewhere says, no, that's not the case either. But these people knew the truth. These people knew the truth, and yet they did not hold on to it. They worshiped other gods. So in uh, verse 8 of chapter 22, it says this, Many nations will pass by the city of Jerusalem, and every person will say to his neighbor, Why has the Lord dealt like this with this great city of Jerusalem? And they will answer, Because they, Judah, Jerusalem, God's people, have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshipped other gods and served them. And this is the whole big thing. Everything that we kind of talked about the past three months about the judgment, while there was all these intricacies of everything, there was really just one thing happening, and that was idolatry. That the people weren't worshipping the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They were turning to other gods. They were turning their face to these other things and turning their back towards God. And so while everybody was guilty, here we have Jeremiah going after the leaders. One of the things that is true both in the Old Testament and the New Testament is that judgment, and don't hear this as a negative thing necessarily, but judgment begins in the house of God. That judgment begins in the house of God. Many times we as Christians want to be able to look at our pagan uh, neighbors or people that don't know Christ, and we want to put certain characteristics on them. And we want to put certain behavioral par- uh, paradigms or certain language on them saying, well, why do you, that's rude. That's um, very, um, you know, that's hurtful what you are saying and doing. And those things are true and might be true. And yet the fact of the matter is, is that we're asking those people to do something that is not part of their nature. We're asking pagans, we're asking non-Christians to act like Christians, and we take all of our time and effort and say, why aren't they acting like this? Why aren't they doing this? Why would they? And so similarly, we have Judah who knows, who has the truth. And yeah, they can point to the Ammonites and to the Moabites and to Elam and to Egypt. Look at those pagan nations that are acting this way. And yet they themselves... Judah, the people of God, have this special revelation of God, and they're not following it. Similarly, we as Christians sometimes don't really want to turn the mirror back on us and be like, if we have entered into this new covenant, and if uh, I trust in Jesus, and I hope in Christ, and I believe, and Lord, help my unbelief, where is, where is that characteristic in us? And again, that, it's, a, it's a process, it's a story, it's a growing. But so many times we want to look outside of ourselves as to what's going on. And yet we, the church, people of God and Judah, were the ones that had the truth. And we were trying to impose some kind of truth standard on somebody else when they've never even heard the gospel. And so I would say in, a, in kind of a real-time application of part of this is that we also need to remember that we don't want people to just change their behavior. We don't want people that are not Christians or quote-unquote nominal Christians or whatever to just change their behavior and have good Christian ethics. What we actually want is for them to experience the living reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether that's this big, huge, life-altering experience or whether that new birth is just this, and it just grows and grows like a seed turning into a huge tree. You know, you don't necessarily see a tree grow. If you do, you, you have probably too much time on your hands. 
but yet it grows, and year after year it gets bigger and hopefully stronger and more, and more beautiful. But what we don't want to do is we don't want to imp, uh, imply or infer these values or whatever when people outside of the church don't even know the gospel, when some people inside the church don't even know the gospel of grace. That we are all guilty of sin, that we cannot save ourselves, that we are not good enough or we can't do any of that in order to pull ourselves up out of that. Even us trying to save ourselves is showing how depleted we are. Is showing the fact that we can't, um, we can't recreate and reform us. But yet God in his mercy and in his grace can. And so here we have the kings of Judah that would point to those other nations that are doing this and that. And like, well, actually, I like that thing that the other nation is doing. So let's incorporate that into it. And yet they have the specific revealed truth of the Torah, of God's presence, and they are not living up to it. So Jeremiah and God, past two, two chapters, were kind of railing against those leaders, those kings. And then what does God say? God says through Jeremiah that you did not take care of the sheep, you shepherds, you leaders, you kings, you priests. But rather, my people are being scattered all over the place because it wasn't just your sin but it was also their sin, that you didn't correct yourself and you didn't correct their sin, that you didn't lead them in the way of everlasting. And so he says this kind of play on words. It says that um, you have not attended to the flock. Well, then I, God, am going to attend to you. And that's kind of like, you know, like a, like a parent, a mom or a dad thing. It's like, oh, you want, you, want, uh, you, want, you, want, you want righteousness for the situation that you fought between uh, the, the siblings. Oh, I'll bring some righteousness, all right. And it's not going to be according to one person. It's going to be this overarching righteousness and love that, that a parent wants to bring. To say like, yeah, I'm sorry you were hit. That doesn't give you permission to take the vacuum cleaner and hit, and hit Eden upside the head. To kind of watch what I say. Um, and this, that doesn't give you permission to do that. I'm sorry that that happened, but that doesn't mean that you can do that. Verse 3, then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of the country. So the exile is happening. The exile will happen. God uh, is the scatterer to a very real degree that God is making this exile happen, even though it was the sins of the people. And so he's going to scatter them, and the people are scattered, and yet God will bring them back and gather them. I will gather the remnant of the flocks out of all the countries that they were scattered to, where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to the fold. And they shall be fruitful and multiply. And where, where do we get that, that phrase, fruitful and multiply? What does that make you think of? Genesis. So in this idea of being fruitful and multiplying, there's also this act of recreation that is happening. That there's this exile and there's this removal and there's the Sabbath of the land of Israel and of Judah and of Jerusalem. And yet there's going to be this coming back and this gathering in and they're going to be fruitful and multiply and there's going to be this recreation of God's people. And it's going to be linked to what it was before, but it's also going to be something different. Additionally, God in his love for us, I will set shepherds over them. And not just shepherds like there were, shepherds who will care for them. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. So God, even in the midst of judging the shepherd, says that I, God, am going, you've had, we've all had leaders. We've all had people in our lives that have either intentionally or not been off target. We ourselves as leaders, whether intentionally or not, have been off target. 
And yet the grace and the love of God that is shown in this is that he is going to continue to develop these good shepherds. In fact, he's going to send a good shepherd that will reign over all of the flock of his people. And that shepherd, Jesus, will not be a shepherd that, is, that lets us down. He might not respond and he might not do the things we think he should do as the shepherd. And yet his heart is pure. His ways are sincere. His knowledge is, is, is completely on target with how he speaks to us. And he will care for us and God will care for us in the midst of the shepherding. Next couple of verses. Uh, verse 5, behold. Again, whenever it says behold in the text, the author is trying to, make you, trying to tell you, hey, stop for a second and think about this. So this section has three beholds. It has the behold up in uh, 2b that says, I will attend to you in your evil deeds and I will make shepherds that actually care for the people. Here's the second behold. That the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David, so the kingly line, a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So two things here I want to draw attention to. The first one is, which I was getting to with the kids, is that all throughout the prophets, there's this idea of some kind of pictures or illustrations that have to do with trees or agriculture or seeds or plants and stuff like that. And why is that? Like, why is the fact that this exists? What is this illustration for? I, like, I, like I told the kids, I don't necessarily know exactly, but I can give you a couple good theological reasons that tie into this. So branch of David, okay, we have the stump of Jesse, um, we have the, the, the little shoot, the tender shoot in Ezekiel that will become this big cedar tree. So why this language about the Messiah? I'll give two reasons. One of them is Genesis seed theology. So in the beginning, Adam and Eve, sin, fell, serpent. Do you remember what one of the um, judgments, declarations over the serpent was that had to do with the serpent and humanity? I will put enmity, I will put tension, I will put war between the, the serpent and the human race through the offspring. And if you translate that word literally, it means seed. So going all the way back to the beginning where all of this crap and junk happened with sin and death and, and all of this, there was this promise. It's called, I think it's called Proto-Evangelum, which is like the gospel before the gospel almost. That this seed, even though uh, the heel was going to be bruised, even though there was going to be this wreckage against the Messiah, which it's pointing towards, that ultimately the Messiah will what? The Messiah will crush the head of the snake, will crush the works of the devil. And this seed, this offspring, is not just going to be um, from out there, from the divine world, but it's actually going to be through man somehow and woman somehow. And we know in the mystery of the incarnation and of Jesus, how God or Jesus is both fully human and fully God. But the fact that he's fully human says something, that there's some kind of redemption that God is working through the line of Adam, through the line of humanity that is ultimately redeemed in Christ where this stuff is happening. 
And so we take this idea of the offspring of seed that has to do with our physical bodies, and there's kind of like this little bit of a turn with it, thinking about seed theology as far as this little seed, as we talked about, is planted in the ground, and it dies. And yet from that death, as Tim read, what happens? Life comes about. And so there's also the seed theology with Abraham, right? That Abraham, the promise to Abraham that God gives to to Abraham is the fact that I'm going to take you and through your offspring, through your seed, I am going to seek to bless the whole entire world through your offspring, through your seed. And so there's like this shift of human seed, human offspring, to the shift of agricultural, to this tree language, to this branch language, to this shoot language that is so important to the prophets, saying that this is a long-standing story and I, thousands of years ago, put it into place and could foresee it and redemption is coming and redemption will come. So that's one reason for this kind of language of David, you know, righteous branch. Another reason uh, comes uh, in the book of Numbers with Aaron's staff. So number 17 comes after Numbers, yeah, um, and then what happens in number 16 is the rebellion of Korah. People are questioning the leadership there of Moses and Aaron. And one of the things that happens afterwards is that God tells um, all the leaders to take their staffs. I don't have a staff. There's a staff back there. Uh, to take their staff and put them all together, okay? And in the morning, we're going to see what happens to the staff. And the one that buds, the staff, the dead staff that buds is going to be my chosen person who happened to be Aaron. And there will be no more of this, even though there was going to be, no more of this questioning as to whom I have chosen. And so we take this kind of thought of theology and we realize that Jesus, the Messiah, is the chosen one. And again, out of this dead branch that the Messiah was going to die, that there was going to be no life in it, what ended up happening? Resurrection ended up happening. And so just like with Aaron's staff that had this bloom and there was almonds on it and there was this new life out of this dead object and it was a miracle and why is this happening? So that was a picture pointing towards Christ, towards the Messiah. His death, this dead piece of wood and then his resurrection, yet there's some kind of life coming out of this place. So that, was, that would be maybe two reasons why this, this language is used in the prophets as far as the righteous branch and um, stump of Jesse, seed, all of that. It's this long story that God is working. Now, one of the other cool things that Jeremiah does, or God, whoever you want to say, does in this passage is in verse uh, 6. He says, so this, this king, this, you know, from, the, from David, this righteous branch, the Lord is our righteousness, and that will be his name. So um, what happens here is that Jeremiah is using a play on words. Does anybody remember who the last king of Judah was officially? Zedekiah was the last king of Judah. Zedekiah. Zedekiah's name means Jehovah is righteous. Jehovah is righteous. And yet Zedekiah was, did not display the righteousness of Jehovah by any means. And he was a bad king. And yet this king that is coming, this, this, uh, this righteous branch that is coming, he will be called Jehovah is our righteousness. And so Jeremiah is taking the last king of Judah and saying how he was a horrible king. And he was called to show Jehovah's righteousness and he did not do that. But guess what? 
this branch that is coming, this righteous branch, will be our righteousness. So this would be like us today, uh, to some degree, saying, so does anybody know what the name Donald means? In reality, not in some kind of slanderous way. It means ruler of the world. Does anybody know what Barak means? It means uh, shine forth like lightning. So, so if we were to take this, and I'll give equal opportunity to all of our political leaders, is that it would be like, you, Donald, are named ruler of the world. And yet, you have not ruled my world with justice. Let's put him in the, in the idea of Zedekiah. You have not ruled my world with justice and with truth and with love. You are called to be ruler of the world, Donald, and yet you have completely forsaken the way I've called you to rule. Barak, you are called this light, this shining uh, force of light that, that you are to shine forth, you are to shine light on these dark places that are happening in the culture, and you are to adjust them and reform them and do all of this, and yet your light only shined and shone for yourself, and you did not think about my people. You did not think about their needs. You did not think about what I, the Lord God, wanted for my people. But you know what, Donald, ruler of the world? I am Yahweh, ruler of the world. And I will, in truth and love and justice, rule over my people. You know what, Barak? You might be named the, the, the shining lightning sun. And yet my eyes and my countenance shine. And I shine into those dark places and reveal the things that are hidden to bring them to light. And to reform them and to change them. Again, not an exact parallel, but that's as good as I could get as far as what Jeremiah is doing here. That he's taking that this king, this political leader that was supposed to be and show forth uh, Jehovah's righteousness didn't. But guess what? The Messiah will. The Messiah will. Kids, you okay back there? Cool. <laughs> Right. Verse 7. Verse 7. Therefore, behold, the third behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought, us, brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. Then they shall dwell in their land. There is a cultural shift theologically that is happening in Judah that he is prophesying about. That yes, God rescued uh, people from the Egyptian gods and from the slavery of the Egyptian government and everything out in the Exodus. And that was the defining moment. If, as you read the Old Testament over and over again, it always talks about the Exodus one way or another, about God rescuing his people, bringing salvation, delivering them out of that land and giving them into the promised land. But now things are going to change because as we all well know that there's not only forces that oppress us that we come under that want to hold us down that are dark forces, but there's also this weird force inside of us that we choose to be oppressed or we choose to be the ones that oppress. And so the exile, just as the exodus was this rescue from sin and death out of that oppression, there's also this rescue that is happening via the exile that this new covenant is going to end up happening 
on the, on the back end of the exile, that this stuff that's not just sin and death are not just around us, they're also within us. They're ingrained into the deepest parts of us, into our DNA. And yet what God says is that through this exile, I'm going to establish this new covenant. And yeah, Exodus was awesome, but no longer will people say, as the Lord lives and make this oath, because God did this awesome thing. They're now going to say, God did this awesome thing. And just as rescue and redemption came outwardly, that this rescue and redemption is also, not to discard the outwardly, is going to also happen within. Where this this redemption of heart, where, like we talked about last week, this heart of stone that has sin written on it is going to be ripped out of our chests and God is going to put a new heart on us and in us and he's going to write his, his law and his grace and his message on that heart. He's going to give us a new spirit. And so it's not going to be just outwardly, which is important, that redemption is happening, but it's also going to be within you and within you and within you and all of those that come to the Messiah and say, I need you. I need your righteousness. You, Lord, are my, our righteousness, not myself. Create me and recreate me. Grow me into this mighty oak tree of righteousness in the midst of this. And so Jeremiah is talking about this idea of God restoring the fortunes of his people. This phrase, God will restore the fortunes of his people, shows up numerous times in Jeremiah. Okay? Here they are. So God's going to restore the fortunes of his people and gather them back and bring them back. God is going to restore the fortunes of his people and have compassion on them. God is going to restore the fortunes of his people and bless and revive them and rebuild them. God is going to restore the fortunes of his people and renew them and have mercy on them. That doesn't negate all the stuff that they did. The exile is still going to happen to Judah. They will not be in the land. They will be taken away. People will die. Mothers will lose their children. Soldiers of countless number will die. And yet even in the midst of all that, which the people chose in worshiping other gods, in the midst of this exile, that there is hope and there is this idea of compassion and God will restore the fortunes of his people. And that partially happened during the exile, but we know as Christians that that even more partially happened at the cross and will completely happen in the second coming of that righteous branch of David as the king Jesus actually reigns across. And I know it's like, well, that's a good theory and ideal, but that's not literally going to happen. Yes, it is. The gospel is not a a philosophy at its core. There will be a person, Jesus Christ, in some kind of a body, resurrected body, that will rule and reign over us. Christianity isn't about philosophy or ideas or uh, wishful thinking. It is about the reality of Christ, his literal death, his literal, literal resurrection, and his literal return. And how his spirit, he sent his spirit to us now to grow us and for him uh, to be within us as the church, for us to bring in part that righteousness and that love to one another and to the world around us. And this, this will happen. And this exile that is going, people are going to be rescued from is going to be this beautiful thing of redemption, not only outside, but also inside. God will restore the fortunes of his people. 
Two, two things about this before I read the chapter again. <clears throat> the restoration wasn't quick. The restoration wasn't quick. Nobody in this generation of the people of exiles experienced the restoration of the people. And that's where, again, we need to try to take our minds. And while you as an individual are insanely important to the Lord, that you are um, loved by him as an individual, that he also deals with his people corporately. And so when restoration comes, uh, we can often, and you know, in a, in a questioning good human, like why isn't this, why am I not seeing this restoration happen? Why can I not, I see your promises in scripture, Lord. I believe, why am I not seeing this? Part of the reason could be is just our timeline. That this restoration that we desire now on earth yeah, we pray for it. We ask the future restoration to come in on uh, earth as it is in heaven right now. But there's going to be things that we do not see in our lifetime that will be restored. And that does not mean we bail. That does not mean we unplug. That does not mean uh, we don't interact with our family, with our world, and with our God now and just wait for heaven and wait for the best which is yet to come. That's not what we're called to. Restoration takes a long time, sometimes. Kind of jealous about, you know, the, the parable. I was, for whatever reason, Steve, I always think of this parable because we had a conversation about it, about the workers in the vineyard where there were workers that came and worked all day and they got paid the same thing. And then there was these guys that sh- showed up at the 11th hour and they worked for an hour and they got the same pay as those other guys. That's not fair. There will be this group of people that are around for a couple of years and then the Lord returns and it's great. And then there's going to be probably, I don't know this, obviously, the rest of us here that are not going to necessarily experience and taste that in the, in the distinct way of here, even though we will experience and, and taste it in the resurrection to come. So first thing about restoration is that it takes a long time. Even in your own life, oh, I want to get over this thing. I want to get over that thing. Yeah, we, we seek the Lord in that stuff, but it's not a quick fix. We are, not, we are both simple and complicated human beings. And the Lord loves us and is willing to stay in, uh, in it for the long haul with us. Other thing I want to mention about this. <clears throat> okay, everybody, close your eyes. Not, not you kids. <laughs> Think about the past month. Think about somebody, whether it's a person or a group of people or whatever, that has either frustrated you, agitated you, that maybe you cursed at, that maybe were really um, hurtful in things that they said or did to you or people that you love. Uh, Think of about a person or a group of people that you just like, ugh! That maybe something, and maybe it's just a fleeting thing, but that has caused some kind of fiery angst within you in the past uh, month or two. Okay, does everybody have one? At least one? Just one. You don't need two or three. Okay, everybody open your eyes. Here's the thing about, if you keep reading in Jeremiah, about restore the fortunes of his people, is that there's this stuff too. Not only, so there's uh, the oracles against the nations at the end, which I'm going to try to challenge Jay to do all 12 chapters 
in one in one sitting for a sermon. So we'll see if that actually happens. Um, but there's all of these oracles at the end of Jeremiah that talk about the judgment of these nations, the judgment of these nations that came against uh, Jerusalem and Judah, who God used, and the, who were completely unrighteous in the ways they did warfare, in the ways that they treated women, the, the gods that they worshipped, and all of that stuff. And yet God wasn't going to let them off the hook. He was going to also judge them. And some of them, he uses this exact same phrase that he uses for his people, that God will restore the fortunes of Moab, of the Ammonites, of Elam. And it's not the exact phrase, but similar phrasing of Egypt. These are traditional enemies of Judah. These are people and countries and nations that uh, Judah, Jerusalem, Uh, Israel, the people of God, have been in conflict with and warred against throughout the ages. And yet God is also going to somehow restore them. And here's where, again, the gospel comes into play. So that person that you thought about, we're not letting them off the hook for what they are doing if what they do is unrighteous. There, there, there's no sign of that in Jeremiah. You know what I mean? Jeremiah repays. God repays through Jeremiah. Okay, we're not, we're not talking about what they did was right. However, it could be that God wants to restore them and restore their fortunes. And that sounds a lot like Jesus and when he calls us, uh, when we have those tangible people in our lives that are our enemies, that we are called to pray for our enemies, that we are called to bless those who persecute us. And that's great when it's an idea, but then when it's somebody in front of you, somebody on the internet, somebody on stinking Facebook that says something that's ridiculous, and you want to go to town, are we listening for the gospel in those points? Are we listening for the truth and the reality? Because remember, there's going to be this huge tree that all these birds are going to come under from every different kind of nation every different kind of background. And yeah, there is the idea of faith and trust that's in the midst of that. But just as God was willing to restore to some degree, whatever that meant, the fortunes of these enemies, are we as gospel people praying for the restoration, not the demise of our enemies? Because we who are being restored need to then reciprocate that and look to restore those that are around us. That's, the, that's part of the gospel, right? that it's not just about me, that as I am being restored by uh, the grace of God in my life, that I'm not trying to hold myself up above and hold my nose to all the crap that's going around, but rather I want to ask, God, how would you have me pray and intercede into this? And be, maybe you never physically talk to the person, but maybe there's something in the spirit, in the unseen realm, that you are praying for those people that you were just thinking about. Maybe there's something where God's saying, I want you to take the gospel to them. And guess what? I don't actually want you to mention my name or the Bible or church for two years. And I just want you to love that person. And then at the opportune time, I want you to share about who I actually am. Because restoration takes a long time sometimes. So you, Cornerstone, as you experience the restoration, in part in this growing restoration as you grow, also remember that we are called to restore others around us to their maker. 
And that's only through one mediator. One of the other things about the branch is that a branch is often in uh, Old Testament thought of as a mediation thing. So we have this, this love of God that is happening in the trunk. And then we have this righteous branch that is reaching out for the world around. And that one mediator is Jesus Christ, but then he is also within us. And through his church, we reach out to others and he reaches out to others through us. Restoration. We are restored to be restorers. We are restored to be restorers. Another interesting thing, uh, when I talked about how uh, uh, Jesus in Genesis 3 will crush the head of the snake in Romans 16, um, going through all of the identity stuff as far as who we are in Christ, Paul actually says to the Roman church that it will not be very long before you crush the serpent's head underneath your feet. Underneath your feet. And so there's this really cool connection in our identity of being in Christ and and Jesus doing that on the cross, but then in all these other ways that he also gives us that power and authority and the brokenness of our lives to defeat those things, which 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 is great. Again, don't necessarily understand it all, but that's the promise and the truth of scripture. So with that being said, team, uh, worship team, if you guys can come back up. I'm going to read this chapter again in its entirety. What we're going to do is just spend two minutes. The team is going to sing a song over us. It's from Psalm 126. Kelly, can you make sure you have that, please? Uh, And this whole psalm, it's a really short psalm, has to do with the restoring of God's people. But what, and the song that they're singing has to do with the restoring of God's people. But I, what I would like you and myself, us to do, is during this two or three minutes as they're singing the song over us, as we're thinking about the idea of, yeah, I want that restoration. I want to be restored into the way God designed me to be. I want you to also think of that person you thought about earlier. I want you to think about that enemy. I want you to think about that person that frustrated you. And just the quietness of your heart, if you can muster it up, ask for God's restoration to come to them. Usually, sorry, all the time, restoration via the gospel means death. And so we're not asking to be restored to being a a jerk or to being an idiot or to being whatever, to being oppressive. We're asking for the actual restoration of God's image in that person of Donald, ruler of the world, of redemptive Donald to actually come forth, of a redemptive shining light Barak to actually come forth because they were made in God's image too. And yes, there is repentance in here. There's being cut to the heart. But for us right now to be thinking and praying for those people to be restored. Jeremiah 23, woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will shepherds, sorry, I will set shepherds over them who care for them, and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. 
In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. Then they shall dwell in their own land. In restoration, obviously we want to get to the part of joy, but oftentimes there's also a lot of sowing of tears. A sowing of tears. And these tears that we cry, both about the brokenness uh, within ourselves and within our families and within our city and within our nation and with people we don't even know, those tears we can sow into the ground. And one of the things that the psalm that you're going to hear points to is the fact that we sow those seeds into the ground, those tears. We sow those tears, and yet out of that, this beautiful thing starts to grow, which is joy and hope and restoration. And we can't be a people that want to negate joy, but we are also not going to be a people that are afraid to cry and to sow those tears where God has called us to.